Thanks for checking out the YVF podcast today. If this is your first time listening in with us, we want you to know that you are loved. Wherever you're joining us from, we hope this message encourages you, builds your faith, and helps you in whatever season of life you're in. Now here's Pastor Kevin. Open up the epistle to the Hebrews, and we're going to open to chapter 4, please. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to take on the next section of Hebrews. It's in the notes. It's Roman numeral 4. And, um, and it, it's a long section. And again, this is just how I've divided it. And in your Bibles, usually there's going to be little headings of different things. Yeah, oh, and there's notes here for tonight. Uh, but this is how I've divided it. So starting with verse 14 of chapter 4 all the way through the end of chapter 7, through the end of chapter 7, chapter 7, not the, to the complete end, but to chapter 7, um, yeah, actually all the way to the end. Hold on just a second. Got a lot of things. So chapter 7 through verse 28, so to the end of chapter 7, we're going to be talking about Christ's superiority over the priesthood of Aaron. Okay, and so right away I want to explain that we're talking about the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, but in, but in particularly not just about the Levitical, Levitical priesthood. So Moses and Aaron, his brother, are of the tribe of Levi, and so there is the Levitical priesthood, and nobody could be in the Levitical priesthood unless they were a, a male, first of all, and born into the tribe of, of Levi. And if you'll remember, the Levites were not allotted any land in the promised land except for certain uh, cities of refuge that were theirs, and those were places where people could come to be protected, who pr- protected from revenge being taken legally against them, who had done uh, wrong things that were not capital crimes. You couldn't go there to be protected if you were, uh, you know, guilty of first-degree murder or something, but second-degree murder, accidental killings, things like that, you could go there to be protected, and we're not going to get into that tonight, um, but those were the only lands that the, that the Levites had, and they served in the temple. They served in the tabernacle to begin with, and then in the temple, and they served the people as priests, and they would serve according to a certain order. They weren't serving all the time, uh, but they would take turns, and they'd have a you know, a calendar (laughs) with a list of when they were to serve and their time that they were to serve each one of them. And, but in particular, we want to focus not just on the entire Levitical priesthood, but on the line of Aaron, the high priest, because the high priest was to be of the line of Aaron, uh, to be the descendant of Aaron. So they are Levites, but they're a different class of Levites. And there's a lot of things that are really interesting to study in the Old Testament about them. But what I don't want to do in Hebrews is get too distracted with all those little details because they're not details necessary to understand the message of Hebrews. And there are certain things that the writer of Hebrews even says we're not going to go into because it would take too long or you wouldn't understand it. And so we're going to focus on the main truth. So what we're talking about is having looked at Christ's superior revelation at how he is superior to angels and then superior 
to Moses who gave the law, now we'll see that he is superior to the priesthood of, of Aaron. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word this evening, and I just pray as we turn to the Bible, as we turn to these living words that are sharper than any two-edged sword, that you would pierce to our heart and you would speak things into our lives that would help us on a practical level to have a better relationship with you, Jesus, to grow in our relationship with you, to have a stronger dedication and a stronger love for you, Lord, I pray, and to not be distracted by the things of this world, Lord, but our whole lives to be dedicated to you, for us to really understand that what we have is the best, and there's nothing better than you, Jesus. And I thank you for that now. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to begin with chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, if you remember, I gave you a list of them in the beginning, but there are several places as we go through these different arguments, if you will, in the book of Hebrews, where we come to this word that's usually translated as therefore, although in Greek it's actually four different words. Um, but we're just going to, I'm not going to get into the details of the Greek here with that. Uh, because therefore is a good enough <laughs> translation of them. But there, there are certain places that are really important, and, and this is one of them in verse 14. Um, it's the second great conclusion that we're coming to. So there, there are a series of these conclusions in the book of Hebrews, and they lead up to the main conclusion that comes in Hebrews chapter 12. And there's, they're designed to build upon one another. So if you remember last week in verses, verse 1 and in verse 11, we saw these therefores, and that's the first great conclusion that talked about if all these things are true, then you should have fear before God and you should have a diligence. Uh, and the word diligence means you should make haste to enter into the fullness of what he has for you. And we talked about that last week. So here in verses 14 through 16, we have the second great conclusion. And let me just read it. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, so it's giving us this main thesis for what's going to come up in chapters 5, 6, and 7, that we're not going to get to all that this evening, of course. And, you know, when, um, if you remember this in school, when you had to write an essay or something, you're supposed to have a thesis statement, or in the first paragraph, that pretty much tells you what we're going to be talking about in this, this essay that might be quite long. And that's what we have here. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as uh, we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Amen. So in Hebrews, and I said this when we started Hebrews, Hebrews is filled with verses that you know, either by memory or you've heard many, many times in your life. And um, very often we, it's not that we take them out of context, but we don't understand the context of the verses. And one of the things I'm hoping for as we go through Hebrews is that we can put those in context. And this, this is one of those places that we, we know really, really well. So before I talk about the call to action, uh, what, the con what these therefores are asking us to do that we'll get to in just a minute. I want to focus on a couple other things. In verse 14, it says that we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, and just in case you didn't know who, who they're talking about, is Jesus, the Son of God. I want to talk about this phrase, passed through, passed through. So go with me just for a minute over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. In Romans 5, 12, we read, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, and you know this passage is talking about Adam and Christ being the, the second Adam. We're just saying about this. So we understand very well in our lives, and we understand it on a very practical level, that we were born with a sin nature. You know, and if you've ever raised any kids, you know that, that there's a truth to this theological doctrine that we are born with a sin nature. No matter how hard we try, we can't help but sin. And we're already guilty of the law, breaking the law, before we even realized what was written in the law. That's just how it is. And that realization is something that we know. And this is an explanation of why that is that way. Because death through sin came into the world. God said to them that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they didn't physically drop down dead at that very moment in time, but death began to work in their bodies. And we know that from the time a child is born, we never think about it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. We shouldn't talk about it. But we know there's going to come a day when that child is going to die. And every parent and every grandparent hopes that they never have to bury their own children, that they get buried by them instead of having to, to bury them. But we know that we, were, we are born with death already working in our bodies. We don't realize it when we're kids. When we're teenagers, we really don't think about it at all. You know, but you get to a certain age where you realize, no, this can't go on forever like this, that I have death working in my body. And that came into the world because of sin. That's a theological truth that every one of us know. But notice the word that is written here in verse 12. It says, death spread to all men. This word spread is exactly the same Greek word in uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 that we just read that says that our high priest passed through the heavens. He, he's, he was spread over the heavens, if, if you will. But but. Better probably would be to say in verse 12 that death was passed through to all men because all sinned. And this is kind of just a little point, but it's, I, I think it's really important for us to understand this. That death is passed through, physically it's passed through our DNA. And in the Bible it's not called DNA, it's called the seed. And the word seed in Greek is spermos. It's where we get the other word from, right? And it just means seed. That's all it means is seed. And so in a very real, scientific, physical way, every one of us actually were inside of Adam when he sinned. And so spiritually, when Adam sinned, we all sinned because he is our father. Every one of us were in him already. And so that death was programmed into our DNA, if you will, and it spread or it passed through to us. And it didn't have anything to do. There's no way we could stop it. 
that had nothing to do with how bad we were or how good we were. It's, it's just a fact. It's, it's what happened. But when Jesus came, he came that the righteousness of God might be passed through to us. It's a reprogramming of our DNA, literally and physically. But we don't get to see it until our resurrection from the dead. But we will be raised from the dead actually in a physical body. It will be transformed and it will be different, but it will be our physical and spiritual body, just as Jesus was raised from the dead. So the death already is not working in us. And so we can truly say what Jesus said, if anyone believes in me, he shall never die. And we can truly say that, because though we will fall asleep, as it's called in the New Testament, this physical body will die, fall asleep, whatever you want to say. The New Testament likes fall asleep for a while, but it will be awoken. It will raise up from the dead again. So it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So in redemption, Jesus, having descended to hell in death, and I'm using the term hell just because that's our English word, but descended into the lower parts of the earth and uh, so that means the bosom of Abraham, that means Hades, that means Tartarus, and there, there's evidence in scripture that he passed through all of the lower parts of the earth, that having descended to hell and death, he has ascended to the presence of the Father and provided salvation for all of us so that in our lives we might, here's another send word, we might transcend our sin nature that we might be changed and we might become new people and transcend death and that we might ascend to the heavens together with him. So look at Ephesians chapter 4 real quick. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 7. And I'm, and I'm saying all this because we need to wake our minds up to not think the way the world teaches us to think and understand that we are the righteousness of God in Christ and live up to that responsibility. So in Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 7, it says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. So who is this host of captives? Well, if you remember when Jesus was on the earth before his death, he told a story about Lazarus and the rich man. And then when they both died, Lazarus went into the bosom of Abraham and the rich man went into Hades. And so this host of captives in Abraham was actually under the earth at that time. And it was called paradise. But then later, after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul talks about a man who was caught up into the third heaven. That's God's heaven. Okay, and, he, and Paul calls that place paradise. So what happened is Jesus went down into the bosom of Abraham and took all of those people, however many millions and millions of those saints there were, they had to wait there. It was a good place, but it wasn't heaven. They had to wait there. They could not go into the presence of the Father until Jesus was raised from the dead. So he ascended to heaven and he took captive those captives. And, and as he's, if he, it's kind of a cool picture, he's going up and he's giving gifts to men. It's like he's sprinkling gifts down on men. And it says, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? Parts, not just one part, but all the parts. So that he might fill all things to conquer death and to conquer hell. 
And he gave some as apostles, so these are the gifts he gave. He gave them to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And why did he give those gifts? So that these gifts could equip all of the saints and equip them to do what? For the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each, each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. It's a very interesting passage because the picture in this passage is not that it's the pastor's job or the apostle's job to do the work of the ministry, but that the work of the ministry is what is done by all the members of the body. And the pastor, the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the teacher, that they are a gift to the body which supplies what, and equips the members and supplies them with what, what they need. And they are, they are related to joints in the body. You know, the joints, they supply what the muscles need. But the joints themselves wouldn't be able to do anything without the muscles, without the bones and all these kinds of things. So we see this picture of the entire body being glorified in the entire body, having the same equal responsibility to do the work of the ministry and build up the, the, the body of Christ. And all of this came to pass because Jesus passed through the heavens. And to pass through, to ascend, it's explained to us in Ephesians, that means that first he had to descend into the lower parts of the earth. So it's very true what David said in the Psalms, that there is no place that I can hide from you. Where can I go from your presence? You know, if I set out on a boat on the sea, you're still going to be there. He didn't say go to the moon because people didn't go to the moon back then. But if I went to the moon, you're going to be on the moon. If I descend all the way to hell itself, you're going to be in hell also. I'm never going to escape from your presence. And that can be a great comfort if you love the Lord and, and a great discomfort if you do not love the Lord. But you're not going to escape uh, from his presence. His desire is, and I won't open it because we've read it many times, as we've seen in John 14, verse 1, where he says, let not your hearts be troubled. His desire is that where he is, we might be with him also. Okay, so it says that he is the great high priest. The greatest of high priests is what we're going to be seeing. So he's the only one as this high priest who stands, I'll talk in, a few, in just a few minutes, we'll talk about what a high priest is. He's the only one that's able to stand before God and make atonement for our sins. Make, to give us a right relationship with God by forgiveness, by forgiveness of our sins. By offering up a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. So if this is true, if this is true, it says, therefore, in other words, if this is true, then the paramount most important task of our life, of all of our lives, is that we hold fast our confession of faith, that we do not fall away from the path that he has set us on, because we don't have any other salvation. If this is true, then we must hold fast the confession of our faith, and I'll talk more about that statement in a few minutes. Then it goes on to talk about um, weaknesses and temptation. 
It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Now, I want to make this statement to you. Weakness and temptation are never an excuse for falling away from the faith, for falling away from the confession of our faith, from falling away from the fullness of what God wants us to, to have in our lives. They're not an excuse because they are enemies for they are enemies that attack us, but our high priest has already conquered all of them. And they stand in our path that we have a high priest who helps us to overcome in every single thing in our lives. Every person can be an overcomer. No person has been made so weak or is so tempted that they cannot be an overcomer if they will trust in Jesus. And this is the good news in the gospel that we preach to people. It's a gospel of salvation. And every person has weaknesses. And every person has temptations. And every person deals with those things in different ways. And some people have been more sorely tempted uh, in some certain area of their life, you know, you meet people who have been, you know, horribly abused as children or something like that, and it's just tainted their entire life. And yet you meet enough people, more than enough people, who have the same testimony, and yet Jesus set them free to know that this actually works. And you can preach this gospel, this truth to people, that the love of God will set you free. That Jesus has been tempted in everything that you're being tempted in. He has been tested. He has gone through all the weaknesses that, that we have. And he has conquered sin because he himself is without sin. So, it tells us that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. The word sympathize, it means this in English. It's a good translation. It means this in, in Greek also. It means that he is affected like us. Listen to this. He is affected like us with the same sufferings, feelings, and emotions. He suffers together with us. He experiences together with us what we are experiencing. He truly sympathizes. We think of, usually we use the word sympathy like I feel sorry for somebody. That's not really what the mean, word means. It means I have the same pathos the same feeling that you have. I feel it together with you. And so understand this. Maybe you've never thought of this or not thought of it enough. When you're going through the worst thing that you've ever gone through, when you're feeling the worst feelings you've ever had or the deepest pain you've ever had, you need to know that Jesus feels that with you. He feels that together with you. He actually feels that together with you. He understands. He knows. He's been through that. Okay? And he feels that together with us. That to me tells me that he really loves me. So he sympathizes with our weaknesses and our temptation. And yet he's without sin. That he alone has gained the victory over this. Now for some people that sounds like bad news because their image of Jesus is a Jesus that wants to wipe them off the face of the planet. Their image of Jesus, by the way, here's a good example. Today, I got in the mail something I ordered. I'm not sure I ever should have ordered this thing. So I ordered this flashlight. And the purpose of me ordering this flashlight is it has a UV setting and I'm checking to find a AC leaks on the PT Cruiser. But then I remembered, wait a minute, 
Charmed and Bethany have one of these, and you can see any kind of dirt, blood, anything, you know, any, anything you don't want to see if you turn off the lights and shine this. So I go in the kids' bathroom, don't tell them, I turn off the lights, I shut, oh my gosh. So then the next 30 minutes, I'm in there cleaning the wall, Tanya, Tanya, we got to and then I'm thinking, I got to get rid of this thing. This will absolutely drive you insane. I want you to know that Jesus is not like that UV flashlight, okay? He sees our weaknesses, and he wants to clean us up, and he wants to help us with those things, but he doesn't make us feel guilty about it. He's not there to kick us and to say, because this is how some people read this, oh, he's without sin. Because let's be honest, if I was without sin, I'd be kicking you people around. Look at me, I'm without sin, and you're not. I mean, hopefully I wouldn't do that. But it is our human flesh that if somebody else is suffering, and we've already conquered it. The first thing we want to do is be like Job's friends and go tell them, well, you're pretty weak, and this is happening to you because you haven't obeyed God probably, and, and we should never be like Job's friends because they were terrible friends. Job said, you're the worst doctors I've ever had. Get out of here. I mean, they, and they totally didn't understand what was really going on, okay? But Jesus is not like that. When it says that he's without sin, that's telling us that he knows the way out that he is the way out, and that he will help us be without sin also. It's going to take our whole lives. It's going to take him coming back again. It's going to take us being resurrected from the dead. But can you imagine this, you know, if you live to be 100, that's just a blip on the entirety of eternity. It's only a little blip of your life that you're having these struggles. We will live in all of eternity in a state that we can't even imagine without sin without weaknesses so we can trust him and we can follow him because he's made it all the way over he's passed through to the heavenlies so he's made a way for us to go to the throne of god right it says uh, let us uh, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace we know this verse he's made the way he is the way to the throne of god he is seated at the right hand of the father so try to get this picture there's a throne of the invisible God, God the Father. You can't even see him. No man has seen the Father. You have no right to approach him. If you stand in his presence, you will be utterly destroyed. You have a good picture of this in the Old Testament with the story of Esther, right? And, and Mordecai tells her, you, you've got to go talk to the king, and, and you've got to intercede on the behalf of our people because we're going to be destroyed if you don't. And she says, there's no way I can go to see the king. I'm the queen, but I have no right to stand in his presence. So that tells me even as the bride of Christ, without Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, I have no right to go before the Father. I only have that right to be before the Father because I come through Jesus and through his blood. Okay? And then, you know, he tells her, well... You know, if you don't do it, God's going to save us some, some other way. That you and your house are going to be destroyed. And, uh, you know, maybe this is why God made you the queen. Maybe this is why you've come to this time of royalty in your life. And so she says, okay, well, if I perish, I perish. And then the story happens, and she does do that. But we have been given entrance to the presence of God the Father because here's Jesus sit, sitting at his right hand. And we come through Jesus. He introduces us. He gives us interests. So it says, let us draw near. And it says, with confidence. I'm going to talk about this here, okay? This is really important. It says, so he's made this way to the throne of God. He cares about everything we go through. He feels our pain. So in our pain, 
in our temptation, in our failures, in our sufferings, the last thing we should do is run away from God. It's what we, our flesh wants to do. But what we should do is draw even closer to God. Because Jesus wants to help us. And he alone knows how to help us. And has the ability to help us. Because he is alone the great high priest. We've lost the idea of a high priest in our society. We don't have those kinds of religions anymore. But you can think about it. In that day when this was written, everybody understood what they meant. Because you had no access to God unless there was a priest Maybe in that the Catholics could help you a little bit <laughs> to understand that anyway. And, and we're like, no, we have access through Jesus now and everything. But nonetheless, try to understand why we have access through Jesus. Because he is the priest. He is the great high priest. And so we have access to God through him. So what we should be doing, it says, is to hold fast to the confession of our faith. And this phrase, hold fast to the confession of our faith, is then repeated with different words, but they mean exactly the same thing. Draw near with confidence. With confidence. The word confidence in the Greek is the word parousia. And parousia means, very plainly, it means freedom of speech. The word confidence in the Greek has to do with what you say with your mouth. It has to do with your confession. That when you come before God, you should have boldness of speech. You have the freedom to speak your mind to God in Christ Jesus. And he actually wants to hear what you have to say. Maybe nobody on this earth cares what you have to say. Maybe you think everybody's bored what you have to say. Maybe you think everybody's running away from you when they see you coming down the aisle at the grocery store? I, I don't know, you know. But God actually wants to hear what you have to say. He wants to hear your confession. So hold fast to your confession of faith. And don't, if, if there's something wrong in what you're saying, he'll fix it. You'll know, you'll get it right away. I mean, sometimes you don't understand that what you're saying is completely a lack of faith. That what you're saying is completely wrong and completely stupid until you actually say it out. And then you hear it with your own ears, and you're like, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. And God just gently tells your heart, no, it's not, is it? No, let's get that confession right. Let's start speaking what the Word of God says. So do we believe this evening that his throne is a throne of grace? Or do we see his throne as a throne of judgment? Because it is a throne of judgment. Eventually, we read about it in Revelation. But if it is a throne of grace to us, then it will never be a throne of judgment to us. But if it is not a throne of grace to us, then it will be a throne of judgment to us. But it is his throne of grace. Do we believe that? Do we believe that God, if we ask for bread, will give us bread? Or do we think that he's going to give us a stone? Remember when Jesus talked about that? Do we believe that if we ask for a fish, he'll give us a snake? Or he'll give us a fish, what we ask for. Do we believe that if we ask for his Holy Spirit, that he'll pour out some unclean spirit or lying spirit upon us? Or do we believe that he will truly give us his Holy Spirit? Because when he ascended on high, he gave grace. He gave gifts unto men. He wants to give us good gifts. He does give us good gifts. But everything has to do with this confession of our faith and with us having the boldness to come to him. You know, 
boldness to come to him when you think about a father and a son re relationship. It's, it's not the same as boldness to go, I, I don't know, talk to some high government official or something like that. Okay? When you talk about a father, everyone in here is, I think, yeah, everyone in here is a parent, has been a parent. You know you actually want your children um, until sometimes they grow up and get really dumb, maybe, I don't know. But you, you want your children to ask, actually ask you for things. You know, you want them to come and say, Daddy, can you do this? Can you do that? And to actually have an attitude of, I want to learn how to do that, Daddy. You know, and not, not have the attitude, I already know. I know everything. I can do everything. God wants us to come to him. He wants to, 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 to teach us. He wants to take us on his lap, if you will, and have a relationship with us. So it says, if all these things, if it's true, really true that we have this great high priest, then we should be drawing closer to God. We should be holding fast to our confession of faith. And we should be approaching his throne with boldness of speech, freedom to speak our minds with this confidence so that we can receive grace. And receiving that grace, finding that grace, we will receive mercy to help in our time of need. Nobody needs grace without mercy. And nobody needs mercy without grace. Mercy without grace is just pity. And grace without mercy will be utter destruction. Because if God puts all his power and gifts into your life but doesn't help you with your sins and failures, you'll fall flat on your face. But he gives us mercy and he gives us, gives us grace. So in chapter 11, we'll get to this much later, it says, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews 11.6, right? Where it says, come to God, it's exactly the same word that's translated here, draw near. He who approaches God, he who comes near to God, your attitude must be one that God wants to bless you. He is good, and he wants to reward you. He wants to give you blessings. He wants to give you grace, and he wants to give you mercy. Not because you deserve them, but because you trust him and because you believe in him. So now let's look at chapter 5 and uh, verses. Uh, I'm going to try to get through verses 1 through 10. Not in as much detail as we just did there, but, but we'll read them anyway. Verses 1 through 10. So this is part, as I've divided this, this is part 1. Okay, We just had the thesis statement. That gives us actually the conclusion. What it, it's telling us what this is all about. And the take-home is that we should be drawing near to the throne. And we should be holding fast to our confession. That we should have fear. That we should be making haste to enter into his presence. So in chapter 5, we have this beginning of the actual argument. Building on Christ's superiority to Moses, Jesus will now be shown... And again, from Scripture, everything is based on these Old Testament Scripture, shown from Scripture to be superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites that was established by the law given through Moses. Jesus is shown to be a perfect and eternal high priest able to truly save all who obey him, a priest of a different order after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we will not have time to talk this evening, but we will, soon, and it will be really interesting. 
Okay? So let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 10 to begin with. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently, the high priest. Now, he's not talking about Jesus now, but any high priest. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. This is, you could say this is still true for a pastor, for an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, or, or teacher. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So see, the argument's being based on the scripture. In the days of his life, of his flesh, I'm sorry, when, it's talking about when Jesus was on the earth, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. So we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? It's not the only time he prayed, but this is an exact picture of that. And he was heard because of his piety and on the cross where he cried out to God and he prayed to God on the cross and he was heard because of his piety. Verse 8. It's a great verse. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So I'm going to go through this and give you a list of things right now. What exactly is a high priest according to this passage of scripture? Number one, a high priest must be taken from among men. He must be taken from among men. It can't be an angel. It can't be a Martian. It has to be a man. Okay? He must be taken from among men, a human. Number two, he is appointed to represent men before God. He is appointed to represent men before God. Number three, he is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices to God to make atonement, big word, for the sins of the men he represents. The word atonement Again, I've told you this, but it's just actually an English word that was coined to express the idea of Scripture, and it means at one meant, to make us at, at one with God, to forgive us of our sins and join us to God. Number four, so he's appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices to God to make atonement for the sins of the men he represents. Number four, he is a good shepherd. Notice that. He is a good shepherd. He deals gently with the ignorant. We were talking about sheep over here with Stan and Jerry before the service started because there's a whole flock of them up, up here by Weed Heights across from Jerry's house and talking about how utterly lost and destroyed they would be without a shepherd, that they cannot do anything for themselves, and it's true. So um, he's a good shepherd who deals gently with the ignorant. What, what do you do with ignorant people? You teach them. That's the medicine. So he's a teacher, right? 
He deals gently with the ignorant, and he deals gently with the misguided. He pastors them. He guides them, helps them to find the way, and he does this gently. Then the next thing, this would be number five, he is himself encompassed with weaknesses. He's surrounded with weaknesses himself, and he must therefore offer sacrifices not only for the people, but also for himself. And then the last one is, his appointment to this honor cannot come from men. It's not an elected office. I know when a pastor is called to a ch church, the board or the body, they vote on this, but it's actually not an elected office. Hopefully their vote is simply to recognize what God has established because it's not an elected office. It does not come from men, but it must come only from God. Does that mean that it's easy to abuse the position? Oh yeah, there's plenty of examples of this in the scripture. Sunday I'm going to talk about Hannah and Samuel a little bit if I preach that sermon I'm going to preach. And you've got Eli there who did the worst job ever in raising his sons and his sons are just raping and abusing everybody in the church in the, around the temple. But you know, that doesn't mean that God didn't call Eli because he did. But Eli just failed. He abused his position and he, he recognized that. He failed to, to raise his, his, his own boys. But that doesn't change that the honor does not come from men. It's not an elected position, but the honor comes from God, and God knows how to deal with those who abuse that position. So we have these six things about a high priest. And as I was reading them, I hope that you could see that all of these relate to Jesus also. But Jesus is the perfection of this that he is greater than this. Even the one where we read that he himself is encompassed, encompassed with weaknesses and must therefore offer sacrifices not only for the people but also for himself. Well, Jesus is without sin, but the scripture teaches us that he became sin on our behalf. And he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we read here, first of all, there's two scriptures that are quoted here. The first one is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And we see that the appointment of Christ, that he is appointed, and his appointment is superior to the appointment of Aaron. Aaron was appointed, but Jesus is also appointment, appointed, but the appointment of Jesus is superior to the appointment of Aaron. It's better than Aaron's appointment. Because Jesus is appointed as the Son of and Aaron is appointed as a slave or servant, if you will. And we've been talking about this with the angels, with Moses, and now with Aaron also. Jesus is appointed as the Son of God. It says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the begotting, the begetting, has to do with the appointment. I have established you as my son. Okay? And so... He's appointed as a son. That makes his appointment better than the appointment of Aaron's. Christ's appointment is superior to Aaron's appointment also because God says in Psalm 110 verse 4 that you are a priest forever. Forever. Aaron's appointment is limited to his lifespan. When the high priest is dead, then he's not the high priest anymore. Somebody new becomes the high priest. And they actually used to, you know how in, you know, even in Anglo-Saxon history, you would 
count uh, epics, or we, we still do that today. We, you know, count, that was the Reagan era, right? You know, you count by presidents, or they count by kings. Well, they would count by high priests. And when the high priest died, a new era begins, because you have a new high priest. But obviously, and it's just this obvious argument that Christ's appointment is better than that of the high priest of Aaron or any of the high priests who served in the temple because his appointment is eternal. It never ends. He already died and raised from the dead. And his appointment as high priest begins with that resurrection from the dead when he was born from the dead, resurrected from the dead, begotten from the dead and so it never ends it's eternal then the next thing is we see that christ's appointment is superior to the appointment of aaron because it's of a different order okay it says that he is appointed according to the order of melchizedek not according to the order of levi to the levitical order there are a lot of problems with the levitical order that the people who read this would have understood if they knew their Jewish history pretty well. And you can go back in the Old Testament and you can find out about it. Because there are reasons, bad things that Levi himself did for why they were made into servants of God instead. And that doesn't mean they were all bad or that, God, that it was some kind of punishment. But there were a lot of things broken under the law because the law was never designed to fix them. The law was designed to show us that we needed a savior to lead us to salvation in Christ Jesus. But Jesus is appointed according, according to a different order, not according to the order of Levi. He's not a Levite. He was born of the tribe of Judah. He would have no right, and it's going to talk about this later, no right to serve in the temple at all. Do you know that when Jesus went into the temple, you know, we read several times they went into the temple. If you don't, if you don't think about it, he didn't actually go into the temple proper. He didn't go into the holy place. He didn't go into the holy of holies ever one single time in his flesh because he would not have been allowed in there. He's not a Levite. <laughs> he has no right to go in there and, and do the... He was always in the outer court. He was in the area where all the people were gathered. That's where he was. And the first time he goes into the holy of holies is in his death. It's a spiritual entering when it's rent from top to bottom. It's really uh, uh, quite interesting. He's of a completely different order. And this is the order of Melchizedek. And no, we do not have time to talk about Melchizedek, even though it's the most interesting thing in here sometimes for most people. And it's going to be very interesting. But we, I will explain to you when we get to it, it will be explained to us in the scripture why the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Levi. And if you're sitting there saying, I have no idea who Melchizedek is, I'll tell you about that too, but later. Okay, so the next thing, Christ's priesthood is superior to the priesthood of Aaron because he is the good shepherd, okay? He is the good shepherd who offers himself as a sacrifice. He doesn't offer up a sheep. He doesn't offer up a goat. He doesn't offer up a lamb or a bull or any of those other things, an oxen that they offered up as sacrifices. He offers himself up as a sacrifice, and God accepts this sacrifice, okay? So he is the good shepherd. All the high priests that came before, every pastor that could be a great pastor today can be nothing but a, 
a picture of Jesus, hopefully an embodiment of who he is, uh, uh, a ministry of his ministry. But there's really only one pastor of Yarrington Vineyard Fellowship. He's the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And if somebody else is standing in his way, if anybody gets in his way, then we're missing out on the ministry that God has for us because he is the good shepherd. He offers himself as a sacrifice for our sin. And we're going to be talking a lot more about that later because we're coming to that also next. So he willingly suffered and he was made weak in his death. He sacrificed himself in order to learn obedience. We're going to talk about that for a few minutes. So look at Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. Because the first time you read that in life, and maybe the 10th time or 100th time, it sounds kind of strange. Why did Jesus have to learn obedience? I thought he was perfect. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 8, that, and that's part of the point, by the way. He is perfect, but he still had to learn obedience. So how much more so do I need to learn obedience? In chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He gave the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his life. He was not just obedient in many things. He was obedient in per, unto perfection. He was obedient unto death, and not just to some kind of death, but the most awful death that any person could experience at that time in history and probably to this day. He died as a criminal on a Roman cross, and that was what the will of the Father was, that he would be killed as a criminal. He would be killed by Romans who are Gentiles. He would be killed by Jews. He would be killed by men. He would be killed by women. Somebody from every possible category was represented there on that day that said to crucify him and that put him on the cross, that we killed our Savior. It's in the book of Acts, they boldly preach that when they first start preaching, by the way. And they say things like, you're guilty of his blood, but God did it in order to save you. And so there's forgiveness of, of your sin. So this was an obedience. It was something that he suffered. The word um, where it says in... Um, uh, let me get to it. In verse 8 where it says, uh, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So the word suffer in the Greek to suffer is pasko. It's where we get the word pasca. Which is where, which is Passover, and it's what Passover is called. Okay, we we know the word passion. Okay, the word passion is closely related to this word, and what the word really means it is not just suffering, but it means to experience something. That's what it means to experience something. That's what suffering is. You know, in Old English, Jesus said, like in the King James Bible, "Suffer the little children to come unto me." We say now, let the little children come into me. But in old English, the word suffer was used like that to, for something that happened to you, something that's allowed into your life. Okay? So Jesus suffered. He experienced many things. 
We would say it like this, he experienced suffering and he experienced triumph in those sufferings. It's not just this idea of he had to suffer because he didn't know how to be obedient to the Father. No, it's this idea of growth. You know, Jesus would say at certain times, my time has not come yet. He would heal somebody and say, don't go tell anybody about this because my time has not come yet. He had to go through this entire process. And he went right, you know, he had to go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he suffered. You know, the whole process of that week before he was crucified is a continual suffering. That's why we call it the Passion Week. He's experiencing this suffering and he's triumphing. He's gaining the victory over each one of them. And it comes one level at a time one attack at a time until he goes to the cross and the scripture tells us that he could have called an entire legion of angels to bring him down from that cross but he did not do it because he was obedient even to the cross because in the garden he said i will drink this cup not not my will be done but your will be done he had to overcome even his own human will to not die so you don't think that Jesus doesn't understand what you're going through. Don't think that he doesn't feel what you're going through. I think <coughs> sometimes we make one of two mistakes. We see Jesus in the Bible and we make him too divine. That's probably not the right way to say it. But we only focus on his divinity. Oh yeah, sure, Jesus could do those miracles. Sure, Jesus could heal people because he's God. You know, I can't do that though. Or we make the other mistake of ignoring his divinity and saying we can do all the things that Jesus did because he did that as a human and we're human too. And yes, we do do greater things than him, but let's be honest, there's never been one example of any human being, including the apostles in the New Testament, who by themselves did greater things than Jesus did. Jesus didn't mean that you by yourself are going to do greater things. He meant that you as a body filled with the Holy Spirit will do greater things. And not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. You'll take this gospel all the way to Yarrington, Nevada. You'll take this gospel to the very ends of the earth. My ministry has been limited to this little area around Jerusalem, but you're going to take this out with the power of the Holy Spirit. And wherever you go, I will be with you all the way to the end of the earth. Right? So Jesus, as a human, he has a will. And he's still human, by the way. <laughs> and he has a will in his flesh. And his fleshly will says, I don't want to die when I don't have to. His fleshly will says, I'm 33 years old. I'm not sick. I'm in perfect health, and I didn't commit a single crime. I don't have to die. And it was a real temptation for him, so real that it says his sweat was like great drops of blood, that angels had to come and help him and minister to him. He couldn't even hardly stand up. When he fell as he's carrying that cross up Golgotha, up Calvary, I do not think that he fell only because of physical weakness. Yes, he would have been physically drained by that moment. But he fell because of spiritual weakness, that he was drained spiritually. He was drained to the last drop for us like a lamb who is slain. Because when a lamb is slain, they slit its throat and drain the blood completely out of that lamb. I don't know if they do it still, but that's how... You make kosher meat. That's how the Jews did it. That's how they offered up a sacrifice. And he was slain completely. And every life was, every bit of life was drained out of him. And all of this he did for us. So obedience for us is no different. 
Obedience is something we have to learn. And we learn obedience in this journey. I hate that word, by the way. But <laughs> I don't hate the word, but everybody uses it everywhere. In this process. See, just try to get this. In the beginning here, we've been talking about drawing near to God, approaching God. Well, we're always drawing nearer, approaching him more. And then we read in Ephesians how we're growing up as this man of God, right? This person of God. And as we're growing, then we're approaching him. You know, in the office today, Frank was in there, and suddenly Pete and I realized Frank's taller than Pete. He was like, what? You're approaching the height of Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And, and Jesus is not only okay with that, he actually wants this. He doesn't want us to stay down here because we, are, we are, are his brothers and he's not ashamed to call us his friends. He wants us to be as he is. And so we're growing in him. It's a process of learning obedience. But that process is moved forward by suffering, by experiencing suffering in our lives because faith is a battle. And faith can only gain the victory if it has an arena to fight in. And unless there's suffering, there's nothing for your faith to act on. There's no way for you to grow. And everybody knows this. You know, your muscles don't get bigger unless you lift weights or run or work a bunch like that. And when you do that, they hurt at night and you get cramps and all these kinds of things. But your body is, at least when you're young, it's not so true when you're old, but when you're young, your body is growing, you know, in a marriage. How do people really stay married for many, many, many years? Because they go through suffering and they successfully overcome it. You are not going to find a marriage that doesn't have suffering. Because you can't get two people to live together without them fighting with each other. It's impossible. No matter how much they're the best friends, how close they are, you know, they're going to grate on each other because we were born in this sin and we have to learn to grow together. So everything grows by suffering. Everything in nature grows by suffering. And so this is being shown to us. The whole point is if this is true for Jesus, then this is true for you. This is true for all of us, and it's impossible without him because he is this great high priest. He was without sin. The 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, verse 21, that he became sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. He did not remain in death, but it says because of his piety, his prayers were heard, and he was raised from the dead. And unlike Aaron, Jesus was made perfect. He perfectly completed the will of the Father. Aaron fell flat on his face before he ever got started. Remember the golden calf? Aaron was, <laughs> Aaron's ministry is a product of the mercy and grace of God. Jesus' ministry is a product of his own ob obedience that he himself conquered. And he did that, he did that for us. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Jesus doesn't need God's, God the Father's mercy because he has no sin. He doesn't need God the Father's grace because he is God himself. He is the Son of God. And he conquered and he won and he shares those things with us. So the last thing I want to talk about is this piety thing because of his piety. Piety is not a word we use very much. Maybe some of your translations have something different. And when we do use it, we think of somebody that's holier than thou. At least that's how we used to say it. Somebody that's snooty about their religion. He's so pious. 
that piety is a beautiful English word. It shouldn't have gone that way, but it did go that way. But what the word means when it says that he is pious, it means something beyond just the fear of God. It means the fear of God. It means a reverence for God. But it means that he's so concerned, and you see this in the garden, about the will of the Father, that the will of the Father, the will of God, is more important than anything else for me. So no matter what happens to me, whether I understand it or not, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. That's what piety is. And it says because of his piety, he was heard, and he was not abandoned to the grave, but God the Father raised him up on the third day because he himself was without sin. That's the Savior that I need in my life. That's the Savior that we all need in our lives, who wants to be merciful to me. He wants to help me. He sympathizes with me and all the problems that I have in my life. And I, believe me, I'm a pastor, but I have problems in my life. And we, go, we all go through things. We're all together in this, you know, as humans. But he sympathizes with us. And he actually is taken from among men. You know, he doesn't sympathize with me from the position of, I'm the son of God and I feel sorry for you. But from the position of, I'm your brother. I'm your friend. I've been through this. And I've been through hell itself. And I will take you through this valley of the shadow of death. And I promise you, when we get to the other side, there's going to be green grass. There's going to be still waters. There's going to be a whole table set out before you in the presence of, of your enemies. And then you get there, and then he, you sit there for a while. Oh, that's great. And then he's like, time to go. Where are we going? Into this next valley. Really? Yeah, it looks a lot darker and a lot deeper. We're growing, though. We're progressing. It's the Pilgrim's Progress, if anybody has ever read that book. We're progressing. We're going forward on this journey that as we approach the throne room of God in our lives. Amen. So that's what we wanted, I wanted to cover this evening. Anybody have any questions or statements of faith? <laughs> okay, when we get to Melchizedek, maybe you'll have questions because that's really interesting. And it's really good. Okay, amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this evening. I thank you that we do have this great high priest, that you are our high priest. Lord, truly, we've totally, culturally, culturally, we've lost the understanding of what a high priest is. And everybody wants to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, and everybody can do it themselves. And, and help us just to realize that really we can't do anything without you, Jesus. And we need you in our lives. We need you today more than we've ever needed you. I pray, Lord, that you would lead us and you would guide us as we suffer, as we go through experiences in our lives, that we would grow up to the full measure of the body of Christ, that we would draw near to you, and that we would not forsake the confession of our faith, but we would hold fast to this confession. And we would... Press in diligently into your presence in our lives, Lord. I pray for this. I pray that you would become more and more uh, tangible, more and more manifest in our homes and in our lives. And I thank you for that, Jesus. Not by some magical wave of a wand somewhere, but by us pressing in and letting you be our high priest. Letting you pour out your mercy on us and fill us with your grace. 
I just thank you for that now. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you are dismissed. We hope you enjoyed the message. Before you leave, we want to remind you that if you want to continue receiving updates on new sermons, that you subscribe to our podcast. If you want more information on how to contact us, make sure to check out our website at urintonvillianfellowship.com. And we'll see you next time on the YBF Podcast.